Our scripture reading this morning is found in the book of Romans, chapter 9, verses 14 to 24. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath? Prepared for destruction. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? This is the reading of God's word. Father, may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Lord, our joy, our redemption, our strength, our purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the great dilemmas of human life is the fact that evil seems so regularly to flourish and goodness seems so regularly to come up short. The fourth stanza of James Russell Lowell's great hymn, Once to Every Man and nation gives voice to this. Though the cause of evil prosper, yet the truth alone is strong, though her portion be the scaffold, and upon the throne be wrong. Now the stanza runs on, and we will look at that later, but we'll stop there right now. In those words, evil prospers, not only that, but seems to be enthroned. That seems... All too often, doesn't it, to describe the world in which we live. We are worshiping this morning exactly one Sunday after specially observing the resurrection and the great promises that God makes in and through that. And we are looking at chapter 9 of Romans, which comes immediately after chapter 8 which is full of some of the greatest and most robust promises that God makes in Scripture. So both the resurrection and Romans 8 proclaim some of the greatest, most incredible promises of God, such as the fact that nothing, nothing in all creation, not angels or principalities or powers or things above or things below nor death itself, nothing, can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is one of the great promises. 
Now, Romans chapter 9 begins with a question. It asks, what do we make of these great promises in light of a world in which evil seems to be enthroned? Where loved ones become critically ill and health fails and finances are strapped and people battle depression. The world in which we live is shot through with sin and suffering and frailty and we preach and proclaim and praise together in an arena of suffering which each of us in every pew in which we sit to some degree shares. So in this context of real life people of all kinds in real pain every week, the promises of the resurrection and the promises of Romans 8 are either real or they aren't. They are either going to help us or they will not. They are either true or they are false. And in Romans 9, Paul looks squarely at them. Romans 9 asks implicitly, if not explicitly, are all the promises of Romans 8 true? Will God really work together in all things for our good? Will he really give us all things in Christ? Will, in fact, no thing separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus? Is there really now no condemnation to those who are in Christ? Well, the promises that believers are staking their very lives on stand. Now, so all these questions are included and implied in the one real question that Paul does ask. It's, it's asked with laser focus, and it centers on the people of Israel. He asks it something like this, in light of the fact that so few of the people of Israel have responded in faith savingly to Jesus Christ, what of all the promises to Israel that they will be God's people and he will be their God? Verse 3 describes Israel as accursed and cut off from Christ. And verse 29 describes Israel as stumbling at the stumbling stone. So what are we to make of this great promise? Paul puts the question this way, has the word of God failed? Can God's promises be trusted? And he answers, of course, no. And then he gives this explanation in verse 6, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. In other words, God's promises are not bestowed just on those or primarily on those or only on those who are ethnic Israel, but those who have been engrafted, who have become children of God through faith, and because of that become heirs to Abraham. That is Paul's answer and his explanation, and that's the good news, the gospel of Romans 9. Now, that specific concrete question about the fate of Israel is the primary question of the chapter which opens the door into the overarching. It's not primarily a chapter on the sovereignty of God, but it goes there through that doorway. And in the answer to that question, Paul moves on to the great, one of the great disarming truths of Scripture, that God is sovereign over all things. One of my theological dictionaries defines the sovereignty of God as, and I quote, 
the biblical teaching that all things are under God's rule and control and that nothing happens without his direction or permission. It goes on to say the sovereignty of God is not merely that God has the power and the right to govern all things, but that he does so always and without exception. In other words, God is sovereign not simply de jure in principle. He is sovereign de facto in practice, in fact. Now this to some is a stern and hard doctrine of scripture and to others it is a doctrine of great comfort and great reassurance. And because of its difficulty, people are regularly prone to get off the two horns of the dilemma and go in one direction. God is sovereign, and that must mean that we are not responsible for our choices. We're not free, or we must be free. We are responsible. Consequently, God can only be sovereign to the extent to which I allow him to be, to the extent to which I permit him to have sway and influence over my life to that extent and no further. And, of course, both horns, or getting off one horn of the seeming dilemma is a mistake. Regularly, Scripture declares both truths together, often in the same chapter as in this one. The bulk of the chapter uh, deals with the election and the call and the sovereignty of God. But the, the chapter closes in the last three verses with the responsibility of Israel. She has done what she has done because she is weak and frail and stumbling and vain. Both God's sovereignty and human responsibility are regularly in Scripture held side by side, sometimes in the same chapter as here in Romans 9, but frequently in the same verse as in Philippians 2, verse 13. Hear it. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We are responsible for every evil in our lives, and God is responsible for every good in our lives. Jesus puts this uh, in two successive chapters. In John 5, he says, You are unwilling to come to me that you may have new life. And in John 6, he says, No one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by the Father. So Romans 9 and the verses that were read to us and some of the verses that weren't read to us uh, give some striking illustrations of this dual truth. For example... Just before Jennifer began to read, verse 11 says, Though the twins were not yet born and had not yet done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works. Here the contrast isn't between work and faith, but work and God's choice. God's election. Let me read that again. So in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Paul anticipated the question, doesn't this mean that God is unfair? Doesn't this mean that God is unjust? Doesn't this cancel out human responsibility? 
And Paul simply reprimands those who would ask that question. He says, on the contrary, who are you? O man who answers back to God, the thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? We can't escape the fact that Scripture simply unmistakably affirms both truths, that God can be trusted, that he holds our lives, that he is sovereign and sure and in control and nothing escapes his grasp, and that we are free and responsible and make choices before him. We will never go wrong if we leave our lives confident in God's sovereignty, realizing and praising him as the one who is author of everything good in our lives and taking responsibility in our lives for all that is frail and vain and weak and evil. Scripture simply affirms both. When Paul raises the question in Verse 14, which Jennifer began with, is there injustice on God's part? He says, no. And then he quotes Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on those on whom I will have compassion. And when he raises the question in verse 19, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? We desperately want to assert that somehow our own lives are in our own sovereign, personal control. But God says, I hold your life in my hands. I am faithful. I can be trusted. There is a will beneath your will. There is a purpose beneath your purpose. It is deep truths like this that inevitably propel us to praise. One of my... uh, commentators I consulted put it this way. It's a little bit shocking because it puts it uh, his reflections in the first person as though God were saying this himself. I'm cautious about these kinds of uh, things, but I found this particularly strong. This commentator says it is as though God is saying to us through this chapter, I will simply not be analyzed. I will be adored. I will simply not be pondered. I will be proclaimed. My sovereignty is not simply to be scrutinized. It is to be heralded. It is not the grist for the mill of controversy. It is the gospel for sinners who know that their only hope is the sovereign triumph of God's grace over their rebellious wills. God is sovereign, and we are responsible under him and before him for all things. Now, we could stay in the depth of that uh, great doctrine of Scripture for many weeks and many months. Indeed, we will for all of our lives and for eternity itself. But I want to, for my remaining moments, go on to a related but also magnificent verse, just one verse. Uh, Verse 23 in the remainder of the chapter, which purports to declare what is the center of God's purpose for our living the very purpose for our lives. The Westminster Catechism gives an answer. It is to enjoy God and to delight in him forever. Here is an answer likened to that. Listen to it. God's eternal purpose, his sovereign call, his sovereign election for our lives, yours and mine, is this. 
to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Let's look at three phrases in this magnificent text. First of all, it tells us who we are. We are vessels of mercy. The uh, Hebrew word for human being, one of several, is nephesh. It means originally throat. It means to say that as human beings, we are characterized in our entirety through that most fragile of organs through which we take nourishment. We are vessels of mercy. To say that means that we confess and understand ourselves to be undeserving, unmerited, unearned. We are saved by mercy and through mercy and for mercy. We are vessels of mercy if we are Christians. We do not deserve to be chosen or called or saved or transformed or heaven-bound. We are vessels of mercy. John Stott says this... uh, This should be humbling to the believer and hopeful to the non-believer. Because we are vessels of mercy, recipient always at the very foundation of our faith of grace, it means there is no cause for a Christian for pride or cliquishness or bigotry or elitism or looking down our noses at anyone else for anything at all, Christian or non-Christian. Mercy produces mercy. And knowing we are vessels of mercy means when we hear phrases like that in Psalm 23, that surely goodness and mercy shall follow us, which means to say pursue us, dog us. Throughout all the days of our life means there is no day in this life or in eternity itself where mercy does not track us down, where it does not tell us who we are. We are vessels of mercy. Uh, I had a student who several years ago turned down what turned in what I thought was an extraordinary few paragraphs for an assignment. I asked her if I could share it by name with others, and I put it in my file. This was several years ago, and I shared it for the first time. With permission from Kathy Cameron, she wrote, and it fits perfectly with this text, it's starting to hit home. I got picked for the team. Me, imperfect, never quite good enough, smart enough, or pretty enough to win the prize. Me. you think that by now I'd get it, but as I read the words on the pages of Erickson's text, our textbook for the semester, we've, this is so encouraging to me that students actually are benefited by textbooks from time to time. <laughs> As I read the words on the pages of Erickson's text, a shiver of excitement ran down my spine. How awesome is this? The God who created the universe has called me by name. How unmerited this favor, how randomly exquisite that he plucked me from my certain path to perdition 
to set me apart, to be holy and devoted to him and to know his will, to serve his people, to walk in his ways, to spend eternity enjoying his fellowship. What is it? Why is it that he would extend me this offer of grace, his gift of perseverance? Why did God in his goodness show mercy and forgiveness where none was deserved? What would prompt him to send his only son to die on Calvary as a propitiation for all my sins? I am without answer. I am with hope for a bright tomorrow and the certainty of eternal life. I can only pray that he will grant that I will love him always and then do with me as he wills. If I warm the bench or if I knock one out of the park, it's his call. I'm just thrilled to be on the team. We are vessels of mercy. And Kathy Cameron understood that. The second phrase that strikes me as the text is that we are prepared. We are prepared <coughs> for prepared beforehand to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared, you and me if we are believers, beforehand for his glory. So we have looked at being vessels of mercy. Now, prepared means that we are prepared before all time to be these vessels of mercy. We didn't equip ourselves. We didn't fit ourselves out. We didn't think things ahead to be vessels of mercy. God did. We are lumps of clay, which he prepared. Again, 40 years ago, I heard and found a poem 40 years ago and put it in my files. As far as I know, and I've uh, searched this week, it's an anonymous poem, but it goes something like this, and it speaks directly to the fact that we are vessels of mercy prepared by him. It goes when God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part. When he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed. Watch his methods. Watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. How he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which only God understands. While his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, how he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes. How he uses whom he chooses and which every purpose fuses him by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. If you uh, see the glory of God, if you know the glory of God, you didn't get there on your own. You were prepared for it. C.S. Lewis speaks of another way in which we are prepared for it. He says, nature didn't teach me to see the glory of God. He, he had to learn of the glory of God a different way through the story of Jesus Christ. But he said there was a preparation for it. And he writes, nature gave the word glory a meaning for me. I 
do not see how the fear of God could have ever meant to me anything but the lowest prudential efforts to be safe if I had never seen certain ominous ravines and unapproachable crags. And if nature had never awakened certain longings in me, huge areas of what I can now mean by the love of God would never, so far as I can see, have existed. We are vessels of mercy which have been prepared by God's blows and loves and foretastes of glory divine, which gives, brings us right to the heart of this great purpose and promise to make known. And here's the phrase the riches of his glory for the vessels which he has prepared. The purpose of God in all of our lives and all of our livings and all that he calls us to is that we might prepare to see and to know and to savor and to rejoice in the riches of the glory of God. What a magnificent phrase. It is to say if we possessed all the material blessings of this world, compared to one in whom the glory of God rested, we would be penurious. We would be impoverished. We have known foretastes of this glory. We've known human hugs and warmth. We have sat in hammocks by lakeside. We have swum in seas. We have climbed mountains. We have perhaps, some of us, known the ecstasy of romantic bliss and joy. We have known great food. All of these Paul is saying, and God is inviting us to, are like appetizers, not come to the meal. They are echoes of the music. Now come and hear the original music, the original harmony, the original song. And that is seen best and seen most deeply in all the things we do rehearse every Sunday, but which we have particularly rehearsed over the last four months. The birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen to what John says in his prologue. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Ephesians, the second chapter, Paul says, In the coming ages God will show the immeasurable riches of his grace, in kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. His immeasurable riches will be shown to us, which means they will not be exhausted. Eternity itself will never be boring. And day after day and age after age and moment after moment will open in cascading revelations of the riches of the glory of God in Christ. That is our future. That is our purpose. I promise we would return to James Russell Lowell's Once to Every Man and Nation. Remember, his opening lines are these haunting observations. Though the cause of evil prosper, yet the truth alone is strong, though her portion be the scaffold, it seems to be in this life the cross, and upon the throne be wrong. Again, evil seems to prosper and be enthroned. But the stanza continues, yet that scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown 
the will beneath the will, the purpose beneath the purpose, standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. The great doctrine of Romans 9 is that God's sovereignty stands over and guides all things, even evil itself, all human willing and acting, can become an anchor. God's sovereignty is an anchor over our storm-tossed lives. It is a refuge in the face of our fearfulness. It is a bulwark of a stone in face of a world that seems to crumble beneath us. It is a hope when the most precious earthly things in this life seem to have been taken from us. And it is a confidence that even the worst miseries of our life can, because of the sovereignty of God and his good promises, be turned toward our good. Father, you are strong and we are weak. But in Jesus Christ, you turn the world upside down. You do the impossible. And you take our worst and turn it to our best. You are sovereign. You are in control. You are faithful. You can be trusted. You redeem ruined lives. And you are strong to save. We confess that we are responsible for rebelling against you and turning away. And we rejoice in the fact that nothing, not life, nor death itself, nor anything in all creation can, because of your sovereign will and purpose, separate us from the love of God which has been known and accessed and made visible, even in Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.